Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Masahiro Sakurai has said that he believes that specialists create the world. By becoming experts in their fields, those who have chosen a certain path will continue to enrich the lives of many other people including experts in other fields. This ideology drives Sakurai in his creative process, and led him to arguably change the world of gaming. This is how a kid saving his allowance to pay for video games became the man who created one of gaming's most iconic mascots, and one of the industry's biggest franchises. This is Masahiro Sakurai. Masahiro Sakurai was born on August 3, 1970, in Musashimurayama, Tokyo. Very little is known about Sakurai's family, as he rarely talks about them publicly. He has mentioned that his parents didn't support his pursuit of game design at first, but he later found their home full of merchandise from his games after they found success. Sakurai was first introduced to video games around the age of 4 or 5, when he played games like Breakout and Pong in arcades. He was fascinated by the idea of pressing buttons and seeing action on screen. After this, Sakurai would use his allowance to buy video games to further what he called his research, and in middle school Sakurai would get a Famicom Basic and begin programming his own games. In his later teenage years, Sakurai would develop an internal struggle that forced him to reflect on what he wanted to do and how he wanted to achieve it. He briefly attended a technical school to learn about electrical engineering, before deciding that he actually wanted to work on video games. He dropped out of the technical school in favor of a traditional high school, where he would study for exams and work a part-time job to afford more games for his personal research. He later concluded that the best way to work with video games was just to do it. In November of 1986, the developer HAL Laboratory released Gull Force, a game that would set Masahiro Sakurai on the path towards his life's work. Sakurai played the game and decided that he wanted to work for the company responsible for it after seeing the credits. Just three years later, he would be working for HAL. Early in his employment, one of HAL's head developers named Satoru Iwata decided that they should make a game that would be fun for both beginners and seasoned gamers. Iwata let anyone in the company pitch him ideas, including Sakurai, who approached Iwata with an idea called Twinkle Popo. Iwata liked the pitch, and the game would eventually become Kirby's Dreamland. This would be both the first game Sakurai was credited for and his debut as a director. Kirby's Dreamland was designed to appeal to hardcore and casual players, being simple to complete but difficult to master. Kirby's ability to fly across the stage was an option for players who might have struggled with the game's obstacles, meaning that anyone could clear the game regardless of their skill. Sakurai explained his reasoning for this, saying, Being able to take multiple hits from enemies yet dying immediately upon falling in a hole didn't mix well in my mind. So I blew Kirby up like a balloon so he could fly at any time. Originally, Kirby was called Popopo, and his design was simple and round. This was always intended to be nothing more than a placeholder. However, late in development, Sakurai and Iwata decided that having a character that could be easily drawn might have wide appeal. They decided to finalize Popopo's simple design, and Sakurai chose to color the character pink. 
His name was later changed to Twinkle Popo and sent off to Nintendo of America for feedback. The Americans sent back a list of other name ideas to use, and amongst them was Kirby. Though it is commonly thought that this name was borrowed from John Kirby, a lawyer who helped defend Nintendo against Universal Studios over the name Donkey Kong, it is unknown if this is the actual origin of the name. Sakurai and Hal liked the general harshness of the word Kirby when contrasted with the character's soft design. So, this name stuck. Kirby's Dream Land had a difficult development because it used a modified twin Famicom system with a trackball to enter code. However, upon its release for the Game Boy, Kirby was an instant success and Sakurai was tasked to work on a sequel to the game. This time, the game would be set for the Famicom and the Nintendo Entertainment System, and was intended to be one of the last first-party games for the console. One of the biggest pieces of feedbacks from critics and fans was that Kirby's Dream Land was too easy and too short. In response to this, and also because their new game was to be one of the final NES games, Sakurai decided that they could make the game more difficult. However, to keep it accessible and give the player more options, Sakurai added the copy system to the game, allowing for Kirby to copy his opponent's abilities and use them. This, in turn, gave the player more variety in how they wanted to overcome the game's platforming and defeat enemies. Sakurai would later call this style of game design Kirbyism. Essentially, Sakurai seeks to keep his games wide in terms of accessibility but deep in terms of offering challenge and replayability. He always seeks to give players value in making his games, a philosophy that would drive most of his future titles. The next project that Sakurai would direct would be another Kirby game for the Super Nintendo, called Kirby Superstar. For this title, Sakurai decided he wanted to use the increased production value offered by the Super Nintendo and packed in several different types of games into Superstar. Shigeru Miyamoto also tasked Sakurai with making a side-scrolling action game playable by two people at the same time, which led to the creation of the Helper System. This would become a staple in the Kirby series since its introduction in Superstar. Around this time, Sakurai's personal life also began to change. A woman named Michiko Takahashi joined HAL and worked on Kirby's Star Stacker. She later joined Sakurai in the development of his next project, where she created several levels and designed the menu system. At some point, Sakurai and Takahashi began dating, and would go on to be married in June of 2008. For his next project, Sakurai was told to work on something new and different from Kirby. For this new game, Sakurai would create two prototypes, one for an action-adventure game and a second for a fighting game simply called Ryuo, the fighting game. Ryuo was originally developed by just Sakurai himself and Satoru Iwata, who had since become the president of HAL. The game was different from traditional fighters in that players did not try to get their opponent's health to zero. Instead, as a character was hit, they accumulated damage, which made it easier for them to get knocked off of the stage. Sakurai decided to include several ideas that he introduced with Kirby, most notably the idea of blast zones at the edge of stages. Iwata and Sakurai also concluded that they needed a roster of characters that players would easily connect with, and decided to make a prototype featuring some of Nintendo's most popular characters. When the prototype was first shown to Shigeru Miyamoto, he rejected it, but Iwata hid this from Sakurai and the two continued to work on the game. When the pair later presented a more complete vision for the game, Miyamoto finally approved of it, and Super Smash Bros. was born. Despite the rough start of development, Sakurai always felt like the game could be a success. He said, We were confident that it was an idea that a lot of people would endorse, and most importantly, we were confident that there was a large audience that was waiting for this kind of game. With a roster including some of Nintendo's most iconic characters and a simple battle mechanic, Smash Brothers would prove to be an instant hit. 
After the game's launch, Sakurai started posting on a blog he called the Smash Dojo, which gave players hints and tips about the new fighting game. Sakurai also used the platform to answer various fan questions, and even gave players tips on how to complete GoldenEye 007. Just three months after the release of Super Smash Bros. in the US in April of 1999, Sakurai would complete his initial draft of its sequel on Nintendo's next console and begin prototyping. As Sakurai later said, The previous game did well enough that Nintendo knew what I wanted in advance, and I wanted a lot. Sakurai wanted everything about this game to be bigger and better than its predecessor, even down to its music. This was the first game in the series to see an orchestrated score, which Sakurai personally pushed for. He felt so strongly about this that he was willing to use his own money to fund it, if Nintendo were unwilling to. In May of 2001, Super Smash Bros. Melee was officially shown to the public at E3, and its first tournament would be held later that same year at Space World 2001. Melee's development was particularly difficult on Sakurai. He noted that he only took a few days off over its 13-month development cycle, and was even hospitalized at one point. This effort was not in vain, though, as Melee would break both critical and commercial expectations, and has remained a staple in the fighting game community since its release. Around this same time, a Kirby-animated series called Kirby Right Back At You was airing, produced by Warpstar Incorporated, a joint project between HAL and Nintendo. Sakurai was heavily involved with the animation's production, often giving feedback on ideas and sketches for the show. Famously, Sakurai restricted the animators with Kirby's inability to speak, which posed many challenges for the team. On the game design side, Sakurai had also moved on and begun development of Kirby Air Ride, a project that had its roots on the Nintendo 64. Though Sakurai has stated that the N64 and GameCube iterations of Air Ride were different and only had a name in common. During this period, Sakurai began to grow tired of his current role and work as a game designer, and by the end of development on Kirby Air Ride, had decided to leave HAL and become a free agent. Kirby Right Back At You ended in September of 2003, just a month after Sakurai's departure from HAL. In his Famitsu column, Sakurai explained his decision. I felt that in the current organization that it would be difficult to continue making games. I left because I felt there would be appeal in working with a variety of other content creators. Sakurai grew tired of trying to climb the corporate ladder, and just wanted to focus on making games for his customers instead of for a company or a corporation. Additionally, in an interview posted on Project Sora, Sakurai stated that he felt limited working with the same people over and over, and wanted to work with different people on new projects. Still, before leaving HAL, Sakurai consulted with Satoru Iwata, his friend and mentor who had since become the president of Nintendo. Iwata gave Sakurai his blessing, and told Sakurai that if Nintendo were to ever make another Smash game, they may contact Sakurai to consult him. After leaving HAL, Sakurai was brought on to help with one final Kirby game, Kirby and the Amazing Mirror, developed by Capcom's subsidiary flagship. The title was built on the same technology as Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland, a game that Sakurai co-directed with Shinichi Shimomura. Sakurai is credited as a special advisor on The Amazing Mirror, and would be the final time he'd work directly on a game starring his pink creation. Now a freelancer, Sakurai began to focus working on a variety of different projects. He continued to publish a bi-weekly column in Famitsu Magazine titled Think About the Video Games, where he expressed his thoughts on topics relating to the industry. In 2004, Sakurai gave a talk at the Game Developers Conference called Risk and Return, where he talked about how games need both risk and reward to entertain players. In 2005, Sakurai created a puzzle game called Medios with Tetsuya Muzuguchi for the Nintendo DS. In that same year, he began designing Sudate Mushi King, a Tamagotchi-like game for Sega's Mushi King series. Though he enjoyed working on these various titles and several other developers approached Sakurai with proposals, one game caught Sakurai's interest more than any other. 
At an E3 pre-party in 2005, Sakurai was shocked to learn that Iwata had plans for another Smash Brothers game on the yet-to-be-released Nintendo Wii. Shortly afterwards, Iwata and Sakurai met in a hotel room, where Iwata asked Sakurai to come back and help with the new title. Sakurai agreed, explaining, If I left someone else in charge, the customers and the people who originally worked on Smash might be disappointed. If that happened, I would be deeply hurt. I couldn't ignore these demands as the original author. He formed a new independent company called Sora Limited, which helped him facilitate contracts, payments, and copyrights. However, since Sakurai was not outright employed by Nintendo or any other company, his position is unique in the industry. It also means that whenever Sakurai is brought back to work on a new Smash Brothers game, Nintendo must go through a lengthy legal process just to allow him to work on it. With Miyamoto's advice, Nintendo and Sakurai recruited personnel from the developer called Game Arts, who had impressed Sakurai with their dedication to playing Melee and their work on Grandia 3. A new office was founded in Tokyo so that Sakurai could work on the game, instead of in Kyoto at Nintendo's main headquarters. Though HAL was not directly involved with the development of this new Smash Brothers, they did offer Sakurai and his new team the same studio space and programs that they'd used to develop Melee. Sakurai was grateful for this gesture, as it made development much more efficient. For this new Smash Brothers game, Sakurai wanted to add an ambitious single-player campaign. The story was to be so big that Sakurai envisioned the game being developed by two different studios, though these plans fell through when he couldn't find a company he could trust to handle it. Super Smash Brothers Brawl was announced at E3 2006, and shocked fans by including third-party characters like Konami's Solid Snake and Sega's Sonic the Hedgehog. When Brawl was released in early 2008, it was a bigger hit than even Melee, and has since sold 13.27 million copies. In February of 2009, after completing development on Brawl, Sakurai and some of his peers founded Project Sora, an ad hoc development studio in Tokyo. The original intent of Project Sora was to gather a team of developers, create a new portable game for Nintendo's next-generation handheld, and then eventually work on a new Super Smash Bros. game. Under Sakurai's direction, Project Sora would go on to develop Kid Icarus Uprising, using redesigns of the Kid Icarus characters from Brawl. However, after completing Uprising, the team was disbanded and Project Sora dissolved. Sakurai later explained in an interview that it was difficult on a human resources level to maintain the company because it had recruited so many people from different studios. Though Project Sora was disbanded, the idea of making another Smash Brothers game remained. Sakurai and Iwata decided that they should make two versions of the new game, one for the Wii U and one for the 3DS. This was announced at Nintendo's E3 presentation in 2011, but development did not begin until after Sakurai completed Kid Icarus Uprising in March of the following year. For the new games, Nintendo teamed up with Bandai Namco, who had staff members who had experience in fighting game franchises like Tekken and Soul Calibur. The cast for the new game was greatly expanded, and included more iconic third-party newcomers like Capcom's Mega Man and Bandai Namco's Pac-Man. Sakurai also let other staff members help him with balancing the game, hopefully lessening the stress on him during development. Despite this, Sakurai suffered from calcific tendinitis in his right shoulder during production, which caused him great discomfort and pain. Regardless, he soldiered on, making adjustments to his toolset, such as using a trackball mouse instead of a normal mouse to ease the pain. Super Smash Bros. for Wii U and 3DS were released in September of 2014 to great success, selling more than 8.5 million copies combined. Smash Brothers for Wii U and 3DS were also the first games in the franchise to feature downloadable content, which opened the door for more surprise newcomers like Square Enix's Cloud from Final Fantasy VII and Platinum Games' Bayonetta. However, during this period, tragedy would strike at Nintendo. On July 11, 2015, Nintendo's president, Satoru Iwata, passed away from complications of a tumor in his bile duct. The loss of his friend and mentor devastated Sakurai, who later said in his column, 
I wrote about my point of view, that when a person dies, that's simply a single character disappearing, but to that person, their entire world disappears. However, even for others, Mr. Owada had a presence that was too great to simply call him a character in their story, I think. After the completion of the development of DLC for Super Smash Bros. for Wii U and 3DS, Sakurai announced that he was taking a short break, but that his next project had already been decided. Years later, this project was revealed to be Super Smash Bros. Ultimate for the Nintendo Switch, a game that Sakurai truly wanted to live up to its name. He decided that this game should be the ultimate Smash Bros. experience, and that every veteran fighter should return alongside several highly requested newcomers, and the most popular items and stages from previous games. Super Smash Bros. Ultimate was released on December 7, 2018. Sakurai once said that developers should see things from the player's perspective, don't limit the possibilities of gameplay. This philosophy, alongside his desire to exceed his own expectations, has undoubtedly made Sakurai a specialist in game development. Whether it's crafting new and fun ideas through titles like Kirby, Smash Brothers, or Meteos, or pushing the limits with his own sequels or reboots, Sakurai has always sought to deliver as much value as possible to the highest number of players. And for that, he has indeed changed the world of gaming. The truly passionate can make their thoughts infectious, inspiring others to love their ideas even if they don't know who came up with them. This is true of Satoshi Tajiri, a private man who is relatively unknown compared to other superstar developers. Despite this, Tajiri's excitement to share his love of games kickstarted a multi-billion dollar series. This is how a kid wandering the rural countryside of Japan looking for bugs became the creator of the most popular multimedia franchise in history. This is Satoshi Tajiri. Satoshi Tajiri was born in Machida, a suburban part of Tokyo, on August 28, 1965. His father sold Nissan cars, while his mother stayed at home raising Tajiri and his younger sister. Tajiri was a curious child who loved to explore the forests around where he lived. There, he found streams and abandoned air raid shelters, where he discovered new insects and animals. Tajiri was an insect fanatic and wanted to be an entomologist. He'd collect bugs so much that his friends called him the Bug Professor. He'd even leave big rocks near trees and come back after some time to see what new bugs had made their home under the stone. From a young age, Tajiri was interested in researching and showing his findings to classmates, so much so that one of his teachers blocked out time for him to present his findings to the class. Tajiri also began making newsletters for his classmates during his later years in elementary school. As time went on, his interest in collecting small creatures evolved past bugs, and he began catching and raising other animals like frogs and crawfish. Unfortunately, Tajiri would find his hobby unsustainable as Tokyo began to modernize. The rivers Tajiri played in when he was younger were filled in as several bridges and dams were built. A great deal of land in Tokyo was also being paved over, further blocking access to the nature he used to explore. Much of the local wildlife was driven away as the city developed, but Tajiri would find a new hobby to fill the void left behind. While he was in middle school, an arcade opened near Tajiri's home, where he was introduced to video games. Like many other Japanese people during this time, Tajiri and his friends took a particular liking to Space Invaders. He found he had a particular knack for playing video games, claiming many of the top scores at the local arcade. Tajiri began to garner a reputation for being able to play games for a long time on very little pocket change, earning him the nickname The Storm of the Arcade. Much of Tajiri's desire to study and share information crossed over into gaming, and he began studying how the games worked. Feeling that others might want to use his knowledge to improve their own scores, Tajiri began writing tips and strategy guides for various titles. 
He played games so often during this time that one arcade just gave him a Space Invaders cabinet. Tajiri's interest in games grew beyond just playing them and into the early stages of game development. As a young child, he entered a contest held by Universal Entertainment with an idea called the Midnight Crows. Tajiri's vision for the title started with a simple black screen with crows hidden in the darkness. Occasionally, the crows would open their eyes, allowing the players to locate and shoot at them. Tajiri's idea was a hit and was recognized by Universal's contest. In junior high school, he dreamed of creating a sequel to Space Invaders, developing the idea into a concept called Spring Strangers. Tajiri submitted his idea to a contest held by Sega, and ended up winning the grand prize. Sega invited the young Tajiri to their headquarters to accept the award, the first time the burgeoning developer would be welcomed at a game company. This event would have a huge impact on the young Tajiri. However, this passion for video games took its toll on Tajiri's schoolwork, as he often skipped class to go to the arcade and play new games. He almost didn't graduate high school and had no aspirations of attending university, something seen as a requirement in Japanese culture to have a respectable career. Despite giving half the money he'd won from Sega's contest to his parents, they felt that their son was becoming a delinquent because of this hobby. His father knew he was interested in electronics, as Tajiri had saved to buy a PC-8000 so he could learn how to code games. Because of this, Tajiri's father tried to get him a job as an electric utility repair person at the Tokyo Electric Power Company, though Tajiri refused the offer. He did eventually complete a two-year major in electronics and computer science at the Tokyo National College of Technology. In the early 1980s, Tajiri noticed that there was little multimedia about video games despite the popularity of titles like Donkey Kong and Space Invaders, and he decided that he could use his love of collecting and distributing information to his advantage. In 1982, Tajiri published the first issue of a fanzine he called Game Freak, featuring strategy guides on completing games, articles about new arcade releases, lists of easter eggs to find, and tips on how to get the highest scores possible. Every issue was handwritten and photocopied, then stapled together by Tajiri. The first cover of Game Freak featured Dig Dug, which Tajiri drew himself. However, Tajiri had very little artistic talent, and did his best to draw the pixels on graph paper using the game as reference. Game Freak was first sold at local bookstores for 200 yen per issue, which is roughly $2.35 in today's money. Though this seemed like a somewhat high price for an unofficial handwritten photocopied magazine, Tajiri was confident it could be successful. Tajiri believed there was a genuine interest in that content, and his instincts were spot on. Game Freak quickly found modest success, and was soon distributed by mail order. Demand was so high that Tajiri enlisted his mother and sister to help stuff envelopes for Game Freak orders received from all over Japan. In 1983, Namco released the arcade shoot-'em-up Xevious, which caught the attention of Tajiri. He quickly became hooked on the title and decided to make an issue of Game Freak dedicated to the game. This special issue ended up being the most successful Game Freak to date, selling more than 10,000 copies. At just age 18, Tajiri's small startup was so successful he had to shift away from handwriting to typing them up, and he began collaborating with contributors. The Xevious issue of Game Freak also opened up new opportunities for Tajiri. Namco hired a player who achieved 10 million points in Xevious to create an official guidebook for the title, but the player wasn't able to because they were busy with school exams. Instead, the player contacted Tajiri and invited him to work on the project. With Tajiri's aid, the guide became successful, doubling expectations and selling 15,000 copies. Another notable collaborator brought in by the success of Game Freak was an artist named Ken Sugimori. 
Like Tajiri, Sugimori had no interest in attending university and wanted to focus on becoming an illustrator. This decision angered Sugimori's family, who kicked him out for his artistic ambition. At some point, Sugimori saw a game freak in a doujinshi shop and reached out, offering to draw for the magazine. He moved to live closer to Tajiri, beginning a long-lasting friendship that would one day define the artistic direction of Game Freak's most popular creation. As Game Freak continued to grow in popularity and Tajiri played more games, it became increasingly obvious to him which games were good and which were bad. To help fix this perceived issue, Tajiri decided that Game Freak should shift from just talking about video games and into full development. In the latter half of 1983, Nintendo released the Famicom in Japan, and Tajiri was determined to make games for the device. He studied the Famicom's programming language, Family Basic, and bought the development hardware necessary to enter production. At one point, he even took a Famicom apart to study how it worked. However, Tajiri and Game Freak quickly ran into an issue. In order to release games for the Famicom, they needed a contract with Nintendo. To solve this problem, Game Freak decided to pitch their ideas to companies who were already licensed partners of Nintendo instead of seeking a direct contract themselves. Tajiri began brainstorming ideas, and was heavily influenced by Namco's game design principles. He'd noticed that each of Namco's games were built upon a verb. Dig Dug was about digging, while Pac-Man was about eating. Tajiri searched for his own verb for Game Freak's first title, and eventually landed on flipping, which would become the basis for Quinty. This title saw players flipping over tiles on a board, using powers found underneath to push enemies to the walls of the game board. Tajiri and Game Freak pitched Quinty to Namco, who picked it up and published it for the Famicom. It was later localized for Western audiences as Mindel Palace, with a fantasy aesthetic replacing Sugimori's chibi art. Worldwide, Quinty would sell over 200,000 copies, giving Game Freak enough resources to officially establish themselves as a company on April 26, 1989. Interestingly, the biggest inspiration for Tajiri and the idea that would define the next step of his career came from an unexpected place, frustration. After Dragon Quest II's release in 1987, both Tajiri and Sugimori played the RPG and frequently compared their progress. During his playthrough, Sugimori managed to get two Madcaps, a rare item that dropped randomly during encounters. This annoyed Tajiri as he'd yet to have a single Madcap drop. In 1989, Nintendo released the Game Boy handheld console, which had the capability to connect with other Game Boys via a link cable peripheral for competitive multiplayer. However, after seeing the link cable, Tajiri realized that players would be able to work cooperatively as well, potentially trading items such as the Madcap to a friend who lacked their own, or working together to fight bosses. Additionally, after seeing Final Fantasy Legend release on the Game Boy, Tajiri realized that not every game on the system had to be a fast-paced action game. Thinking back to Namco's verb-based game design principles, Tajiri began brainstorming a game centered on exchanging, imagining small creatures crawling back and forth between Game Boys along the link cable. Tajiri dreamed up an idea revolving around the collection, trading, and battling of capsule monsters. Game Freak pitched this idea to Nintendo, who eventually picked it up and agreed to publish it. The pitch particularly caught the attention of Shigeru Miyamoto, who served as a mentor for Tajiri as the idea gestated. However, the Capsule Monsters game ended up taking six years to make, an extraordinarily long development cycle at the time, and Game Freak would need to work on several smaller projects to fund the studio. The first of these games was Smartball, a title written, designed, and directed by Tajiri. The game was published by Sony for the SNES, commissioned to show the Super Nintendo sound trip which Sony contributed to. As a platformer that sees players take control of a character named Jerry Bean, Smartball was a modest success that didn't stand out amongst the early titles of the SNES. 
Nevertheless, a sequel was planned at one point, but cancelled after Nintendo and Sony had a falling out over contract disputes for a CD-based SNES add-on which ultimately became the PlayStation. Afterwards, Tajiri showed his Capsule Monster idea to mother creator Shigesano Atoy, though Atoy felt the Game Freak still needed more experience before taking on such a big idea. Atoy referred Tajiri to Game Boy creator Gunpei Yokoi, who was looking for a team to make a Yoshi game for the handheld. The title had a strict six-month deadline, and forced both Tajiri and Game Freak to learn a great deal about game development quickly. Under Tajiri's direction, Yoshi was completed on time with a somewhat mixed reception, though it impressed Nintendo enough to lend Game Freak the Mario IP. Tajiri then directed the Japan-exclusive puzzle game Mario and Wario, which saw players use the SNES mouse to guide Mario through levels. In 1995, despite their close relationship with Nintendo, Tajiri and Sugimori co-directed an action platformer titled Pulseman for the publisher's main rival, Sega. Another modest success, a few of Pulseman's ideas would live on as attacks in future Game Freak titles. Tajiri compared working as contractors on games like this to doing homework, just wanting to get them done as quickly as possible to the best of their ability so they could work on projects they were passionate about. During this period, Tajiri also put his experience in writing magazines to work, briefly working as a freelancer for various publications like Famicom Hishoban, Family Computer Magazine, Famitsu, and Playboy Weekly, though this publication had no relation to the American Adult Magazine. Despite these numerous contracts, development on Tajiri's Capsule Monster's idea was sluggish and nearly bankrupted Game Freak. Tajiri frequently lacked the funds to pay his employees, and five staff members quit as a result. Tajiri never paid himself during this time and had to live off his parents' income to survive. However, Game Freak didn't give up on the idea, and were eventually able to complete development with the support of Nintendo and extra investments from Ape Incorporated, now known as Creatures Incorporated. Tajiri often stayed awake for more than 24 hours to help come up with ideas for the game, before sleeping another 12 and starting the process over. The concepts of Capsule Monsters evolved quite a bit since Tajiri first conceived of the game. The idea of collecting, battling, and trading monsters remained, but Tajiri also wanted to include an entire world for players to explore, inspired by his childhood experiences in rural Tokyo. So much of Tajiri was in the title that he decided the default name of the main protagonist should be Satoshi. Tajiri has even gone as far as to call the player character him when he was a kid. Shigeru was chosen as the default name for the player's rival, honoring the advice and guidance Tajiri was given by Shigeru Miyamoto. Tajiri also insisted the monsters faint after losing a battle instead of dying, because he thought there was already enough violence in the world and didn't want kids to associate losing a game with death. Upon hearing the concept of trading and battling across consoles, Miyamoto suggested that multiple versions of the game be released with different monsters on each, to encourage trading between players, a tradition that every entry in the series would follow. Game Freak ran into trademark issues with the name Capsule Monsters, trying alternatives like Capumon before settling on Pocket Monsters. This name was eventually shortened further when it was localized for the West, becoming Pokemon. Development on Pokemon Red and Green was finally completed after six years, with the games releasing in Japan on February 27, 1996. However, Nintendo and Game Freak did not have high expectations for them. The Game Boy was very far into its lifespan, and with the release of the Nintendo 64, both companies felt the gamers had moved on from the handheld. Several publications didn't cover the release of Red and Green for similar reasons, and Tajiri had even worried that the general lack of interest in the titles would lead Nintendo to reject them. However, they hadn't taken into account how many young Japanese children were still playing the Game Boy because it was cheaper than new hardware. Over the next few months, sales of Pokemon Red and Green never dropped off, and many gamers bought both versions so they could capture every Pokemon on their own. 
Surprised by the consistent sales, Tajiri experimented with ways to keep interest in the games alive. Nintendo and Game Freak partnered with the publishing company Shogagukan, who made a manga adaptation of the series. Media Factory was then commissioned to create the first version of the Pokemon trading card game in October of 1996, with some promotional cards being given away with issues of the manga. After development was completed on red and green, but before they were sent to be printed on cartridges, programmer Shigeki Morimoto secretly added a final Pokemon as a prank. Morimoto only ever intended for this Pokemon, the legendary Mew, to be obtainable by Game Freak's staff. Rumors of this 151st Pokemon began to spread, and Tajiri decided to capitalize on them. In Koro Koro magazine, Tajiri confirmed the existence of Mew and distributed playing cards featuring the Pokemon. Interest in the Pokemon spiked, and Game Freak quickly organized a contest to distribute 151 Mews to lucky winners. Tajiri believes the secrecy and inability to capture Mew through traditional means created positive word of mouth and helped to virally market these early Pokemon games. By the end of 1997, Pokemon Red and Green had sold more than 4.6 million copies in Japan alone. The trading card game was a hit, an anime adaptation began airing, and a third, updated blue version had also been released. Despite fears that Western audiences wouldn't find the series as compelling, localized versions of Pokemon Red and Blue were released in 1998, with the anime and trading card game following closely afterwards. The series was equally successful in the West, with many outlets dubbing the phenomenon Pokemania. The series became so popular that several schools had to ban the trading cards because they were distracting students and causing fights. After the release of Red, Green, and Blue, Tajiri directed Pokemon Yellow, another version of the original title that took more cues from the anime adaptation. From there, he contributed designs to the action RPG tactics game Bushi Siryuden, released exclusively in Japan for the Super Famicom. However, the continued success of Pokemon drew Tajiri back to the franchise, and he once again took the director's chair for a pair of full-fledged sequels, Pokemon Gold and Silver. Upon their release in 1999, they continued the enormous success of the Pokemon franchise, going on to sell more than 23 million units to date. However, Pokemon Gold and Silver would be the final game Satoshi Tajiri directed himself, instead stepping up into a more managerial role at Game Freak. Tajiri is credited as an executive director for the third-generation Pokemon games, Ruby and Sapphire, with series composer Junichi Matsuda taking on the director's chair. A similar dynamic between Tajiri and Matsuda continued on Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green, remakes of Tajiri's original games for the Game Boy Advance. Tajiri also served as scenario writer for the remakes, and approved all of the game's text himself. After Fire Red and Leaf Green, Tajiri fully stepped away from the day-to-day -day development of the games, though he has been credited as an executive producer on every title Game Freak has developed since, whether they were related to Pokemon or not. Since the early 2000s, Tajiri has stepped away from life in the public eye. He's rarely given interviews, instead focusing on his work at Game Freak. That said, a manga based on his life was released in 2018. Tajiri's passion for sharing information about what he loves and his desire to use that to develop good games literally changed several industries. Since Red and Green released on the Game Boy, Pokemon has become the highest-grossing multimedia franchise in history, with an estimated $95 billion of total revenue across its games, merchandise, animation, and even a Hollywood feature film. All of this from a kid who liked bugs, stapling together his self-published game magazine. In his 2005 Game Developers Conference keynote, Satoru Iwata opened with the words, On my business card, I am a corporate president. In my mind, I am a game developer. But in my heart, I am a gamer. 
These few sentences would be echoed in everything he did, from leading the most successful game console launch Nintendo ever had, to innovating the way gamers interacted with developers. Iwata's creativity and dedication would cement him as an icon in both Nintendo and the video game industry as a whole. This is the story of how a young student playing with a calculator would go on to become one of the most widely known and warmest faces in the industry. This is Satoru Iwata. Satoru Iwata was born on December 6, 1959 in Sapporo, Japan, as the son of a politician. However, despite his father's background in politics, Iwata was drawn to technology, even at a young age. He said that his first encounter with computers was during his years in middle school in Hokkaido. Every Sunday, he would travel to the nearby Sapporo subway station, where there were several pay-per-hour public computers, and on them he would play a simple numeric game titled Game 31. This was so early in the concept of computing that the words microprocessor and personal computer did not exist. His interest in games and computers would follow Awada into high school, where he worked a part-time job just to save enough money to buy an early Hewlett-Packard calculator for 160,000 yen. It should be noted that this was during the mid-70s, when the yen was at an all-time high. The price of that calculator today would be in the range of 4,800 American dollars. This particular calculator came with a magnetic card reader, which allowed the device to read and write simple programs. And using this feature, Awada began creating basic number games that he shared with his classmates. Watching his friends enjoy the games he created brought Awada great joy, and from that point forward, he felt that his path in life was set. In 1978, Awada began attending the Tokyo Institute of Technology, where he studied engineering and computer sciences, the closest equivalent to a game programming course at the time. However, the classes offered by the university didn't challenge Awada, who dedicated much of his time in high school to learning all that he could about computers. So instead of spending time studying in school, Awada would often travel to a local department store, the first in Tokyo to have an entire section dedicated solely to personal computers. Here, Awada met like-minded students, with whom he would discuss the growing industries of technology and video games. This group would eventually become a close-knit circle of friends, and before long, formed a club that would evolve into a company called HAL Laboratories. Though Awada did not co-found the company, he was amongst its first employees. He recalled that there were just five people working there when he joined. The name HAL was chosen as a nod to the antagonistic supercomputer from Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and because the letters H, A, and L put them one step ahead of computer company IBM. However, despite this lofty name, the company had much more humble beginnings. Awada and his co-workers rented a small, single-room apartment, which acted as their first headquarters. Though he was both determined and enthusiastic about games and programming, Awada argued with his family over the decision to join such a small and unproven company. His father, who was elected the mayor of the port city Miro Ran, was especially distasteful of Awada's path. The conversation ultimately ended with the elder Awada refusing to speak to his son for six months. Awada once reasoned, they must have thought I was joining a religious cult. Regardless, Awada stayed firm in his decision and helped the burgeoning company create some of their earliest games. His first credit was for the MSX title Super Billiards. He also ended up filling as many roles as the company needed him to, often acting as a game designer, a programmer, and even overseeing marketing. 
His passion often led him to work on weekends and holidays, simply because he wanted to. Wada's proficiency in programming and design garnered him the respect of his peers, and he quickly rose to the title of Coordinator of Software Production in 1983. After the announcement and release of the Nintendo Family Computer, or Famicom, the team at HAL was immediately drawn to the device. Iwata had expert knowledge of the Famicom's inner workings as the console shared components with the Commodore PET, a console he worked on while in college. Hal reached out to Nintendo seeking a partnership, and Iwata personally traveled to their Kyoto headquarters and met with the company. While this might have intimidated others, Iwata was confident in his abilities. He once claimed that he believed that he could write better NES code than even Nintendo's EAD engineers, or that he could write the fastest, most compact code. Nintendo's management saw potential in Iwata and HAL, and eventually hired the company to assist in the development of Pinball, a title that was falling behind schedule. Work was quickly completed on the title, and it released in Japan on February 2, 1984. Pinball marked the beginning of many early collaborations between Nintendo and HAL during the era, and Iwata worked on many of them, including Balloon Fight, NES Open Tournament, and the 1987 Famicom port of Joust, just to name a few. Before too long, HAL Laboratory was given the opportunity to create an original IP to call their own. Iwata decided that the company should focus on making a game for beginners, a title so uncomplicated that anyone could pick it up and play, but challenging enough to be fun for more hardcore gamers. He took pitches from anyone in the company, and chose an idea titled Twinkle Popo from a fresh-faced designer named Masahiro Sakurai. Iwata's directive of simplicity ended up rippling through the entirety of this new game, from its level design to its art direction, eventually taking up the final form of Kirby's Dreamland. The title was released on April 27, 1992 in Japan and August 2, 1992 in North America, and it has sold over 5 million copies to date. Dreamland was a hit for Nintendo and HAL, inspiring numerous sequels and spin-offs throughout the years. Kirby has since become the de facto mascot for HAL. However, despite the success of their new game and their growing relationship with Nintendo, HAL had fallen to the brink of bankruptcy in 1993. The company was only rescued through the intervention of Hiroshi Yamauchi, then president of Nintendo, who offered aid in exchange for two things. That HAL would become an exclusive second-party developer for Nintendo, and that Satoru Iwata would become the company's president. HAL and Iwata accepted the offer, which would prove to be the great turning point for both the developer and the man, and Yamauchi's trust in Iwata was not misplaced. Sakurai later remembered about Iwata. Even though he didn't start out in the managing field, he read numerous management books, and he would ask for advice from the necessary people that he would take to heart. And that paid off. During his tenure as the president of HAL, Iwata successfully led the company away from bankruptcy, all without losing his knack for programming and design. Oftentimes, he would personally step in to save games from disaster. One such instance was Mother 2, or Earthbound, as it came to be known in North America. The title was being worked on by a different team than the original Mother game, and four years into development, it was still riddled with bugs and nowhere near completion. When Iwata, who was acting as a producer on the title, visited developer Ape Incorporated, he famously said, If you're going to continue to make this game like this, it's going to take two years. He then told the team that he could help, but they had two paths forward. He explained, If we used what you have now and fix it, it will take two years. If we can start fresh, it'll take half a year. 
Project lead Shige Sato Atoy and Ape Incorporated accepted Awada's offer and threw out what they'd already completed. And with Awada's help, many of the problems the team were running into were solved in just a month. True to his word, Awada helped complete Earthbound's development in just six months. Another title that faced problems in its development was Game Freak's Pokemon Stadium. Pokemon Red and Green had a very rocky development, and the code for the games was complicated and fragile. To make things worse, there were no specification documents left by the original programmers, so porting the battle system from Red and Green to Stadium was proving to be incredibly difficult for Game Freak and Nintendo. Though he didn't officially work at either company, Awada ended up acting as an intermediary between the two. He'd also aided in the overseas localization for Red and Green, and studied their source code so that he could better suggest changes. So, when he heard of these difficulties, Awada stepped in and ported the battle mechanics to Stadium himself in just one week. When Shigeki Morimoto, an original programmer for Pokemon Red and Green, heard of Awada's accomplishments, he remembered exclaiming, What kind of company president is this? When he later thought back on this experience, Awada explained that he stepped in simply because, I felt that for the whole team at Nintendo, the biggest priority was to not do anything that would adversely influence the development of Pokemon Gold and Pokemon Silver, so I very naturally slotted in on the development side for Pokemon. His concern for the development of Gold and Silver eventually led Awada to aid in the development for those games as well. Game Freak was concerned that their vision for the titles wouldn't fit on the limited memory space available for Game Boy cartridges. Upon hearing these concerns, Awada once again used his talents to create compression tools so efficient that they allowed the developers to effectively double the size of the game's overworld. When later asked about these tools, all Awada had to say was, well, I was willing to do whatever I could. A final project that Awada personally saved was a four-player fighting game from Kirby creator Masahiro Sakurai, codenamed Kokudo Gimo Ryo, or Dragon King, the fighting game. The young developer approached Awada with this idea and was immediately given the green light to work on it. However, at the time, HAL had no spare programmers to work on the prototype, so Awada took on the role himself, spending his weekends coding early builds of the game. After Sakurai had difficulty coming up with original characters for the title, it was instead decided to use Nintendo's pre-existing characters. Awada and Sakurai weren't even sure if they'd be able to get approval to use the characters, so they didn't seek permission. Moving forward with a demo featuring Mario, Donkey Kong, Fox McCloud, and Samus Aran. This title eventually became Super Smash Bros., which went on to become one of Nintendo's most successful franchises. And all because Awada saw potential in an idea and programmed the prototype himself. As the president of HAL, Awada had frequently proven himself as both a developer and a manager, and Hiroshi Yamauchi had taken notice. In 2000, he offered Awada the position of head of Nintendo's corporate planning division and a seat on the company's board of directors, a proposal that Awada accepted. Over the next two years, he sought to reduce the company's costs and streamline the production of their games, even stepping in once again to help save Masahiro Sakurai's Super Smash Bros. Melee. It appeared as if Melee wasn't going to make its release date, so Awada reviewed the code and fixed several bugs himself, all in the span of just three weeks. Awada later recalled his time working on the game. I was right there, sitting by programmers in the trenches, reading code together, finding the bugs, and fixing them together. And because of that, the game made it out on time. Awada's efforts over these two years again proved his ability as a leader, and made him a natural choice for promotion within the company. In May of 2002, Nintendo announced that Hiroshi Yamauchi was retiring as the president of Nintendo, and that Satoru Iwata had been chosen as his successor, the first outside of the Yamauchi bloodline. 
Iwata's tenure was a breath of fresh air for Nintendo. One of his first decisions as president was to personally meet with all 40 of the company's department heads and roughly 150 employees, a stark contrast to Yamauchi electing to rarely ever meet with employees one-on-one. -on -one. Additionally, where Yamauchi tended to make decisions based on intuition and past experience, Awada was driven by data and evidence, and he wanted others to work alongside him to keep the company in check. To do this, he promoted Shigeru Miyamoto, Ginyo Takeda, Yoshihiro Mori, and Shinji Hatano as representatives on Nintendo's board of directors, equaling his own position. However, despite remaining a profitable company, when Awada was promoted as president, Nintendo was starting to lose momentum. In comparison to their competitors, the GameCube was struggling to perform, even after Iwata fostered a productive partnership with Japanese publisher Capcom. He'd also noticed a declining interest in video gaming by the general public. It was becoming increasingly obvious to Iwata that Nintendo needed a new direction. Awada commissioned a year-long analysis of the industry, which concluded that pushing for the most advanced hardware was not the most effective path forward. This was, perhaps, some vindication for Awada, who, as early as 2002, felt that gaming had become far too exclusive, that the industry was too concerned with the technology behind the games instead of the games themselves. Awada oversaw the development of new hardware that focused more on inventing new and innovative ways to play games instead of trying to compete with cutting-edge graphical technology, a direction that Nintendo still follows to this day. The first piece of new hardware influenced by this decision was the Nintendo DS, a handheld console that featured two screens, one of which was a touchscreen. This proved to be a turning point for the struggling Nintendo. The DS would go on to become the second highest-selling console of all time, moving more than 154 million units during its lifespan. As Awada desired, the DS appealed to gamers and non-gamers alike, with titles like Nintendogs and Brain Age becoming hits. It was only natural that Nintendo would seek to emulate this success with their next home console. Discussions of a new console began in 2003, after Yamauchi encouraged Iwata to pursue development of a revolutionary product. Iwata, Miyamoto, and Takeda had several meetings to brainstorm new ideas, and Takeda was eventually assigned to design new hardware with Iwata giving him the directive that a mom has to like it. The company took a risk by investing in new, accelerometer-based motion-sensing control inputs, instead of more powerful graphical displays. The device, then codenamed the Nintendo Revolution, was publicly revealed by Iwata at E3 2005, who pulled it from his jacket pocket and held it above his head to highlight its small size and lightweight. The company elected to wait to reveal the console's remote and nunchuck controller until the Tokyo Game Show later that same year, and the Wii as its true name in April of 2006. Despite a mixed initial reaction to the name and design, Nintendo was steadfast in their decision. In 2006, Iwata said that video games are meant to be one thing, fun, fun for everyone, and insisted that the remote control design would make the device immediately accessible. Regardless of initial doubts, the Wii launched in late 2006 to incredible success, shipping over 100 million units during its lifetime. Even more than that, however, Nintendo and their console created a new trend within the industry, forging the way forward for companies to experiment with motion control and other unique inputs to their video games. Awada and his vision for a revolution changed what it meant to be a gamer, opening the label for anyone and everyone who wanted to play. 
During this period, Awada became well-known to the gaming public through his series of Awada Asks interviews, where he would personally sit down with game developers and other staff to ask questions about their games. In these, he'd often share anecdotes about his time as a programmer, insights into Nintendo's history, and his own philosophies on game design. Additionally, he became even more recognizable for his appearance in Nintendo Directs, a series of online presentations that the company began broadcasting in 2011. Though the Directs were used as a medium to announce new games and showcase gameplay, Awada approached them with the same creativity that he did with the rest of his projects, acting out occasional skits with other Nintendo executives and employees. These presentations have proved to be a massive hit, and have since replaced traditional press conferences as Nintendo's primary method of previewing their games to the public. Nintendo prospered under Awada during most of his leadership, with new variations of the Wii and DS selling spectacularly during their run. However, poor marketing and low third-party support meant that their newest console, the Wii U, struggled from its release. This slow start meant that the company began taking losses in 2013, but Awada refused to let this negatively affect his employees. To protect them from layoffs, he personally slashed his own salary in half and flat-out refused to fire anyone as he felt that it would hurt employee morale. And yet, despite this, things only got worse. In 2014, a cancerous tumor was discovered in his bile duct, which caused him to undergo surgery immediately. This forced Awada to miss a planned appearance at E3 2014, which caused great concern amongst the gaming community. Fans and colleagues sent their well wishes, and even the online image board 4chan sent Awada a crowdsourced Get Well Soon card. His road to recovery was slow and difficult, but even through this, he never lost his smile or his stride. He even decided to publicly update his me to reflect the weight he'd lost during his illness. In June of 2015, Awada was once again unable to attend E3 because of his health. He was later hospitalized once again because of complications from his illness, though this did not stop him from continuing his work. Even in the hospital, Awada was exchanging ideas with the Pokemon company Sunekazu Ishihara about the game that would eventually become Pokemon Go. However, the public did not understand how truly serious his condition was, and sadly, on July 11, 2015, Satoru Awada passed away. The next day, news of his passing spread throughout the industry, with fans, news outlets, and even competitors all mourning in equal measure. Awada was buried on July 16, 2015, and his funeral was attended by thousands. During that day, former Sonic Team lead Yuji Naka said that even the sky in Kyoto is crying. No one can deny the impact Satoru Awada had on the gaming industry. Under his leadership, Nintendo entered a new era of success, and as a result of his efforts, the industry was pushed forward into a new state of thinking. An entire new market of gamers was opened up. His incredible talents as a programmer helped to create some of the most celebrated and widely played video games ever released, yet he rejected praise for his accomplishments, claiming that he was just doing his job. It's clear that no matter where he was in his life, whether it be in a subway station in Hokkaido or at the head of the largest gaming company in the world, Satoru Iwata remained one thing, a gamer.